Welcome to The Trail Less Traveled, an adventure series dedicated to taking you back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. Missoula, Montana is a mecca for outdoor enthusiasts, and each week we will bring you tales of outdoor adventures both near and far, as well as adventure information and inspiration and a few tunes to set the mood. You can read more about the show online at traillesstravel.net. And now here's your host, Grand Canyon Whitewater Guide, yoga instructor, and master of the didgeridoo, Mandela. We are recording the trail as traveled on the eastern coast of Australia. We are in Caloundra, Australia, which is on the Sunshine Coast. Caloundra is kind of where the Sunshine Coast begins, and it's just a lovely, jolly easy living part of Australia. Wonderful surf from where I sit right now. If I look behind me, I can see the ocean. And a cyclone is passing pretty close to Australia right now. So the sea is very rough. So here we are recording inside on a beautiful sunny day on the eastern coast of Australia. And I'm speaking with Kaylee O'Sullivan. Kaylee O'Sullivan was born and raised in Bundaberg, Australia. She's going to tell you more about Bundaberg and what it's famous for. Kaylee was born profoundly deaf, and with the help of her mother, Kaylee was able to speak well. She is currently very interested in eco-building. She's a designer and carpenter. She's passionate about sustainable building design, her fur babies, and the vegan lifestyle. So first of all, just want to say thank you so much, Kaylee, for your time and energy joining me here today on The Trail Less Traveled. Thank you very much. I'm just going to describe where I'm from, Bundaberg. So I was born in Bundaberg. It's a very tropical place with lots of sugarcane and I often see a lot of banana trees and a lot of red dirt as well. There are a lot of beaches in Bundaberg as well. I used to go to the beach every afternoon to go bodyboarding. It's a pretty flat country as well. No hills at all, so if you want to ride a bike in Bundaberg, you've got no problem with hills. Bundaberg has sugarcane, which is very used for making molasses for the rum. There's a Bundaberg rum distillery. So that's where all our sugar cane would go to and that's where they would create the molasses to create the rum. So we're pretty famous for our sugar and the rum, the lovely beaches and the red dirt. I think the tropical atmosphere as well. Bundaberg is located in central eastern Queensland, just halfway from Brisbane and far north Queensland. Kaylee, you have a lot of knowledge about survival and edible Australian plants. In Australia, that's called bush tucker, right? Edible food, you know, different plants or even insects could be considered bush tucker. I'm just wondering if you could share some of the knowledge that you have gained about your land, your country here in Australia, survival skills, and perhaps telling us a little bit about some edible Australian plants. As a child, I loved being in nature outside. I love trees and my favourite colour is green, so anything green in nature and being outside was my favourite. So we would go camping in Bundaberg on a sandy beach with all the waves in the ocean and nice bush behind us. I would just walk around on my own and I would find these colourful berries and they look like food but we were taught not to eat anything that we don't know about. When I was watching TV as a child, I saw this ABC TV show called The Bush Tucker Man. He was a man in the military that taught the Australian military 
what to eat in the bush if they needed to be like in the bush on their own with no food. So the TV show was based in Queensland, all over Australia, where Les would go to Aboriginal communities and learn from them what they eat and what foods are available on our land even before settlement or farming. So I will watch his TV show as a child and unfortunately there was no captions so all I could do was look at him walking around picking this fruit or vegetable or being with an Aboriginal community cooking something and I would see what's going on and see what they eat how they cooked it and then then we go camping or I go in the bush and I would see that plant or fruit or vegetable and I'll go yeah that is like a yam or this is a gooseberry which is like a little fine and I did not eat any of these because there are some that are poisonous that you need to cook or prepare before you eat them so I didn't know that process I just picked out what they were I was eating any of them and for my 13th birthday my mum and dad bought me a bush tucker man book which is a mini little guide with all the bush tucker plants and edibles so I would just take this book everywhere I went, anywhere, even school, even after the school, going to the beach. I'll have this book with me and f- try to find some bush tucker. I, I just learnt for myself by reading this book what the plant looked like. And I've seen this plant before, I go to the plant, look at it and just learn about it. And as I grew older, by the time I was about 16, 17, I just continued to identify these plants and I even drew them and painted them just because I was really interested in what bush tucker was available on our land and how the Aboriginal community would survive out in the bush. And around that time, I learned a lot. I learned enough to know what I can eat. So... My first bush tucker would be like, it's called a pig face weed on our coastal shoreline, in the sandy coastal shoreline. You can eat the pinky kind of flesh, flowery bit, like a hibiscus flower you can eat, a hibiscus flower. So I ate that, and that was my first bush tucker. And from then on I just found other bush tucker like the burdekin plum, which is a very big tree, large tree with these purpley kind of plum fruit. They will drop to the ground. They will ripen. And sometimes you can smell it fermenting. But I used to eat a bird and plum here and there. It tasted good. Maybe not so sweet. It was a bit bitter, but I just loved learning about our Australian nature and what's out there. I love plants and knowing that you can eat food when you're out in the bush if you need it to. That was my passion as a child and now I still identify these plants and I tell people about it. Yeah, I just continue to know what's out there and enjoy knowing what that tree is, what that bush tiger is. And I think it came from, because my family learned this skill from Aboriginal communities years and years ago and just through the generations, I heard about bush tucker, bush tucker, this and that. I just loved knowing about it and learning about the Aboriginal community and am happy to be here in Australia.
with our beautiful bush tiger and plants and what's out there. The Trail Less Traveled podcast and international outreach programs are made possible by the support from listeners such as yourself. For the cost of a cup of coffee once a month, you can support the show on Patreon. Patreon can offer you a subscription-style payment method in the amount of your choice in exchange for priority access to the Trail Less Traveled visual series, exclusive content, behind-the-scenes footage, and ad-free podcasting. Please consider helping keep my fiscal raft afloat by visiting patreon.com slash trail less traveled. Kaylee, I'd like to talk to you a little bit more about BMX before we move on to talking about growing up deaf and setting up the school for the deaf in Uganda. You eventually placed second in all of Australia for BMX. Can you tell us about that journey and a few tips that you might give to a beginner BMX rider? We competed for the Australian National Championships in Cairns, North Queensland, which is the very top of um, the tip of Australia. My family and I travelled up there by car with our bikes in the back. My brother was not entered in the race. He decided not to. So he put his bike in the car anyway, just so we can ride around. I was about 14 years old. That was in around 2004. We went up to Cairns. It was a very interesting journey because I had not been to Cairns before. It was lovely to go there and we rented out a little cabin at a holiday village up in Cairns. I trained so hard for this competition because prior to the national championships I won four or five state championships which is my state Queensland and there was no competition left you know I wanted to to continue to compete so this was my chance my first time to compete with other riders from all over Australia in my age group and this was a really scary and fun adventure but I was very ready for it. I trained so hard. I trained every day after school. And I went to the gym nearly every morning. I was really determined to possibly win the Australian Championships. So we were in Cairns and what we do before races, we have practice where we just run around the track. It's like a new track that I don't know about. So we learn it the day before or a couple of days before the races. I'd meet other ladies that are about my age and I wonder who I'm racing with and I don't know anyone. I know a few people from my own hometown and around the state, but then there's new people there. It was quite scary. You just don't know how fast they are or how good they are. I was excited as well because I was able to compete with um, other girls who have possibly more skill than I have or so when the races came on it was Saturday and Sunday we have our heats which is like a series of races where we compete with each other to gain points and that to be in the finals and we only can have eight people per race so say there's 16 girls enter this 14 year old girl category 
So we have to race each other until like, the best eight of the group can go into the finals. So on the Saturday and the Sunday, I came first and second in all my heats, which means I was able to make it into the finals. But I never raced this one girl in all the heats until the finals. This one girl, she was winning all her heats as well, and so was I with another girl. And I'm like, this girl's really fast. So I just never rode with this one girl. I was feeling very confident because I was winning my heats or coming second, making it into the finals. And I was confident. I'm like, I couldn't win this, you know, maybe. So the final race was eight best riders of Australia in that age group, 14-year-old girls. We all lined up at the gate. It's like a metal gate that comes up so you can put your front wheel on and stand and balance without your feet on the ground. And then they have like a, a starting command and beeps. And there's like three beeps or something like that. And then the gate drops. Then you go. So the finals. I'm up on the gate with seven other riders. And one of them I had no idea who she was. I never met her before. Never raced with her before until the finals. So the gate drops and I'm paneling down the hill to the first turn I was out in front of everybody and I was really happy and I just kept going I was just remembering the state championships that I had many many years ago where I fell off because I was so scared and I was in front of everybody but I was like so so scared of maybe losing I don't know or scared of anyone else coming up near me I've learnt to, for this Australian race, I learnt to not worry so much and just, you know, do my hardest, be aware of who's around me. So I did my best, got into the first berm, I was in front of everybody, so I continued to do that for the next berm, which is another turn, and then the last turn, before you get to the finish line, I was still in front and I was just pedaling my way down to the last straight until this girl, I have no idea who was, she came up next to me. And that's when we really, we really pedaled our hearts out. We just pumped this last straight, pedaled, pedaled, pedaled. And then to the finish line, we were both next to each other. And we got over this finish line. And at the end, I think our legs went to jelly. We almost fell over and our family were at the end and just holding on to us, hugging us and saying, yay, yay. But the girl and I looked at each other like, who's the winner? <laughs> so we looked at each other and we were like, I never met you before, but hi, you're good. You know, we, we talked and talked and she was like, wow, I'd never had that kind of competition before. So we were waiting for the results and we turned around, we were listening and then the commentator was saying that um, this girl was the winner. So she was just in front of me, and I came second. So I came second in Australia, but I was really happy because I knew I was out in front, and I was with this girl who was also really good. And then I learned that her name was Caroline Buchanan, and she's a very well-known BMX rider, and she's been to the Olympics, and she still races, and she's always been a really good 
BMX rider, <laughs> like pretty much unbeatable. <laughs> so I never beaten her in my time of racing, but that was a really good experience. That was the first time I met Caroline. And yeah, she did really well. She's pretty unbeatable. <laughs> but yeah, that's my Australian Championship experience. So I came second in Australia and I was really happy. And yeah, it was a really good experience. That's awesome. That's the voice of Kaylee O'Sullivan, and she was born and raised in Bundaberg, Australia. She is an eco-building designer, carpenter, and she's also passionate about sustainable building design as well as the vegan lifestyle. Kaylee was born profoundly deaf, and with the help of her mother, Kaylee was able to speak well. Kaylee, before we talk about growing up deaf and the school that you set up in Uganda for deaf children, can you give us a couple of tips for someone listening who has been inspired to start learning to ride BMX? What I learned from a child was, it's called pump. So you're going over these dirt mounds. Someone who was really skillful at this taught me and a bunch of other kids. We had to use all of our body to get up to a mound. And what pump is, we're not in the air, we're going over this mound with both of the wheels still on the ground, going over these bumpy jumps and, you know, different kinds of hills. So pumping is where you're sort of pushing your bike down and also up and down over these mounds, and that makes you go really fast or faster. It's called pumping, you know. We'll start at the top of the hill and not pedal at all, just roll down the hill, and we just had to learn to push all of our body all of our might and strength to getting up that hill, down, up and down. So always elbows and knees bent and, you know, moving them as you're going up and down. And we used a lot of our core muscle. So our core muscle, along with using our arms and legs, we are able to push the bike forward somehow. So we're able to move the bike without pedaling. So pumping is a good tip to have so that you can just move around freely say you're cruising down the coast on the footpath you can just push the bike around without having to pedal and jump or bunny hop which is lifting your bike off the ground so pumping was a really good thing I learnt and I think it was a really good skill to have before you could learn a lot of other things there are quite a few tips for people who want to learn to ride a BMX bike if that's um, just riding up and down footpath or BMX racing, pedaling is a skill that we really need to go fast or to go on a bike. What I've learned was always have your, so sort of the palm of your feet, not on the pedal. So just be aware of where your feet is on the pedal. So not only just your toes or your heel, just more of the front part of your foot. And that's where all the strength goes from your leg into the pedal, down through the foot to the pedal. And I've learnt to use that part of my foot, pedalling as moving your feet, sort of going back and then up again. I've learnt to try and have a flow in my legs and feet and the pedal, because it's a pedal, you're sort of more pretty flowful. I've learnt how to balance properly on a bike, because you need to have a good balance when you're on two wheels, because if you slow down and there's no speed, you need to be able to be confident that you're not going to topple over. You can just learn how to balance by putting a front wheel onto a wall or uh, a hard surface 
and you can just push down on the pedal, like the front pedal, so your bike is sort of hard against the wall, and then just learn to have your feet off the ground, hands on the handlebar, and sort of moving your handlebar and your core muscle and body sideways to try and learn to balance on a bike when you're dead still. And that's a good skill, because you're training your muscle to balance really well on a bike. When you have a good balance, you'd be very confident and ride really well. Hello there, Mandela here, your host of The Trail Less Traveled. I want to thank our premier sponsors for The Trail Less Traveled, New West Knife Works and The Mountain Man Toy Shop. Handmade knives and tools forged in their factory on the western slope of the Tetons in Victor, Idaho. New West Knife Works makes knives like they cook, using the best ingredients and preparing them with patient hands of an artist. Their aim is to bring more joy to everyday chores by making tools that are as beautiful as they are useful. See for yourself by visiting newwestknifeworks.com. Use promo code MANDELA for 10% off your entire purchase, which will not only set you up with a knife that you will pass down for generations, this also supports the Trail Less Traveled podcast and international outreach programs. Visit newwestknifeworks.com using promo code M-A-N-D-E-L-A. We're recording the trail that's traveled on the eastern coast of Australia. There is a cyclone passing by right now, and so we're deciding to record the show inside where there is no wind that will challenge our recording equipment. And today I'm interviewing Kaylee O'Sullivan. Kaylee was born profoundly deaf, and with the help of her mother, Kaylee is able to speak well today. Kaylee got a cochlea implant when she was 17 years old, and she also set up a school for the deaf in Uganda. I was born deaf, profoundly deaf, meaning I could not hear in my ears. So I grew up with hearing aids. They sit on the outside of my ear with a molded plastic in my ear, and this it sort of acts like a microphone with the loudspeakers so I can hear what's being said or what's going on. So I grew up with that in school. I was very lucky because I went to a school where there was about 10 other deaf children and that school was in Bundaberg and it was different. It was like maybe a first in Queensland or maybe even in Australia where the principal and the teachers got together and decided to integrate all the deaf children into normal classrooms, like mainstream classrooms. So I was I grew up beside children with disabilities and children that can hear. So it was just normal to be around everybody with different things going on. And we were very lucky that the hearing children were able to learn how to sign, like use sign language to communicate with us who are deaf people. We were taught to write English really well, so the very few that went to that school in Bundaberg are very lucky because we grew up to be able to write English and be able to communicate well. So that's how I grew up at school. I was very lucky to be able to write English, you know, reasonably well, and to read. And my mother taught me how to speak clearly. I did not really speak clearly 
until I got the cochlear implant when I was 17. So if I was here today with just two hearing aids, I would not be able to speak really well because it's weird when I say deteriorated, but I was already deaf. What I mean is the hearing aids were no longer strong enough to help me anymore. So as I grew older, the hearing aids were getting stronger and stronger and then to a point where it was useless. So I was not able to speak clear enough or hear anybody. So then at that time I was racing BMX and I heard about this cochlear implant through friends who got this and they said it was really good. It helped them to pick up sounds that they never heard before and when they say that, I just felt like, maybe I should try this. And then I went to the hospital in Brisbane where they specialise in this area. And they were talking about this cochlear implant. It could be really good for me and so forth. And then I asked the question, what about the AMS? Can I keep riding my bike? And they said no, because it will be dangerous. What I have is a cochlear implant in my ear. There's a magnet like underneath my skin so that the outside coil can attach to it with the computer and microphone on the outside with the battery. So the microphone picks up the sounds I'm hearing, go through the coil into the electrodes, into this magnet thing, and then that send little... The doctors put wires or something from the magnet down to my cochlea, which is the shell bit of the ear. And in our shell bit of our ear, there's hairs. For a hearing person, the hairs are normal and working, whereas mine are flat and not doing anything. So that wire going into my cochlea sends electrodes in there to make those hairs move and work. And that's how sound is travelled into your ear into my brain so that I can pick it up so it's a bionic ear pretty much it really affected my life I had a choice to give it a go and give up BMX or forget about it and just continue to race and compete and possibly go to the Olympics and when I turned 17 I think I gave the doctors a few months to think about it and I continued to race and then eventually I got to a point where I decided I needed it because I did feel left out of groups. If I go out somewhere and I could hear nothing or I can hear sounds but I can't talk to anybody or nobody will understand what I'm talking about because they can't hear. My voices wasn't clear enough. So I felt very sad around that time. I said, because I was a teenager, it could have been depression, maybe. Social issues that I couldn't... A bit of isolation there. So I decided in town to get this implant. And so I gave the doctor to go ahead and decided to give up BMX. And I had my last race in the Gold Coast, which is in Queensland. So I had my last race there, say goodbye to everyone. But then around the time of getting this implant... It was something, there was a change in the law where if you are over 16, you have to pay for it. I just turned 17. But I went in the office at 16. Just as, as I turned 17, I gave the doctors a go ahead. I wanted this implant. Then they said, well, the laws have changed. You have to pay for it. 
And then um, my mother and I looked at each other. We were like, okay, what do we do? And they just gave us an estimate cost for this implant, which was $30,000. So 30000 My mum and I were, we could not do this. We grew up poor. and So I, I've already given up BMX. Then I went to the hospital to find out that we needed money to pay for this. We were in Brisbane at that time. We went back to my hometown, Bundaberg. I was um, still at school at that time in year 12. Yeah, I had really good teachers at high school. They heard about what happened and they thought it was not fair. And one of the assistants for a teacher, we were very close when I was at high school. She heard about what happened and she decided to do something about it. So what she did was she just contacted all my clubs in Bundaberg, like the Rotary Club, Lion Club, their organisations that help the community. So she contacted everybody and she did a lot of research and she decided to fundraise the money for me to get this implant. She did a lot of work and then I went to the clubs and organisations and they felt like it was not fair for me to miss out. So I became really good friends with a lot of people in my hometown, Bundaberg, because because they came forward and said, well, I want to donate this much, I want to donate. A lot of people, almost the whole town, donated money. They put me in the newspapers. I was sort of a famous local face in the newspapers. I remember walking down the shopping centre and a lady would run up to me and give me a hug. And then I came walking and another person did the same thing. So I felt like I was a, a local face to what was going on, like a deaf person missing out and so the whole town rallied up. We raised more than $30,000 in a very small amount of time. So that was the power of community. I was able to get the implant not, not long after and it was scary because I had to go to surgery where I had to go in to a big hospital, the private hospital and yeah, the doctor would take me through this process, tell me what's going to happen, show me what was going to go in my head. As a 17-year-old, I just took it all in and didn't stress so much. I just learned to take it as it is and say, yep, I'm getting that. Let's do this. I'm worried about being able to heal. So I went through the process, got the operation. My head was in bandage for about a week before I could go back in and get the actual outside part, which is like a computer and the coil to hang on my ear and then click onto the magnet inside my skull. So yeah, when that happened, it was very weird at first because the sounds were very clear. I didn't know what was going on, what the sounds were. I think my brain was sort of just learning to hear again. When a baby was born, growing up, hearing a leaf rustle on the footpath, that was one of the sounds that I heard. I never heard that before, but I could hear that. That was different. Just little sounds and... I just learned to learn the sounds, try and look for the sound, or ask people, what is that noise? Learn about it, and then I can associate what that sound is. And that's how I learned to hear again properly. 
That is the voice of Kaylee O'Sullivan, and we are recording the trail as travel today on the eastern coast of Australia. Kaylee is an eco-building designer and carpenter who's passionate about sustainable building design and the vegan lifestyle. Kaylee was born profoundly deaf, and with the help of her mother, she's able to speak well. Kaylee received a cochlea implant at the age of 17, and she was just talking about the experience of hearing some things for the first time. Kaylee, about three years after you received your cochlear implant, you went to Uganda and you helped to build a school for the deaf in Uganda. Can you tell us about that journey, please? So three years I had this implant and I was able to speak really well and to hear really well. The doctors were surprised that I, I learned really quickly and I felt like I was doing well and I finished school. I didn't really have any goals or I didn't know what to do with my life future. I went to work as a teacher aide, like a teacher's assistant, because I was close with my teacher aides at high school. So I felt like maybe I could be one too. So I worked for about two or three years as a teacher aide. It took me that long to think about how can I give back to deaf children. Working as a teacher aide, I was working with deaf children in Bundaberg, the very same school that I went to. So I met my old teachers and teacher aides and some of the kids that grown up, some of their siblings are still there. And So around that time I was thinking about how can I give back to deaf children. I had a friend who went to Uganda around that time. She only went there for a couple of months and came back and she told me about Uganda, just about how a lot of people struggled over there, not about deaf people but um, she hasn't come across any deaf person over there. But I just learned about the orphanage that she worked with and, and I thought that might be a way for me to give back somehow or learn about another culture and give back. So I planned to go with her or work with her where she was working in Uganda. It's in East Africa. It's called the Pearl of Africa because I think there's a lot of beautiful resources there, like beautiful jungles. I didn't know much about Uganda. I didn't know much about the culture, nothing. I did a little bit of research. I didn't have any internet at home. So I just did a little bit of research when I could at the library or from my friend. And I was like, I'll go over there and, you know, find out what's involved. But then I thought, well, why can't I just help deaf people over there? Is there any deaf people in Uganda? And I looked up deaf people in Uganda. And there are heaps. And... There were organisations and groups that would help. I think they were like charities, like church groups that helped people in Uganda that were deaf. And I'd scroll through all the organisations and I'm like, there's heaps there. I can work with one of them. And there was one of them called Banaja's Deaf Initiative, which is BDI Uganda, for short. I think because they were very small, they just seemed very big. And I just contacted the person who ran the organisation and he uh, gave me a lot of information about people in Uganda and what he did in that. I went over there not long after my friend did and I decided to not work where she was going. I decided to go and meet these people. (laughs) I was only young, 19, going on 20. I just thought, well... I was pretty much like a backpacker, you know, learning to get to the country. And I met with 
a group of people, and they were lovely. I think I was a little bit silly to go somewhere without knowing who they were, but fortunately they were really good people. They were very genuine, and they had this school under a tree. Only 10 deaf children were there, under a tree, not far from the tree, uh, just a old building that was not even finished. No doors, windows, just a bit of a roof and maybe three walls because the rain in Uganda is so heavy. There's a lot of rain in the summer, wet season. So they decided to go to this old building and as I arrived, I met them and then went to this school and met children that were deaf and they had a completely different language to what I know. So I had no idea what their language was. I never learnt it. So I was there. They were very excited because I don't know if they have ever seen a white person. I'm not sure. But they were very excited. I look back at it now. I know they were like being really good and they were just really happy that someone was visiting from another country. So I stayed there for about three months in Uganda with this group of people. I stayed in a, like near the school, which was outside of the city. It wasn't a village with mud huts and it was just old buildings. But I stayed with the people that ran the school and I became really good friends with them all. And I stay in contact with them to this day. And for three months I stayed there in 2010. I was fortunate enough to have money saved from my work to give and I helped with renting out a, a building that was more suitable. This building had doors and windows and a roof, so when it rained, we could still go to school, be okay, not get wet or miss school. In my three months there, I learnt Ugandan Sign Language, some of their language, Luganda. I learnt about deaf people in Uganda. Unfortunately, most people in Uganda think that a deaf child cannot do anything. They can't read or write or learn anything. So a lot of families would leave their child at home to do hard work, like cleaning the house and farm work, because they've got the body to do the work. But they didn't think that they could use their brain. So going into going to Uganda, showing them that I am deaf also, I'm the same as these children... They can do anything, just like I can. I can jump on a plane to travel. So can they. I think during that three-month day within the area, I met a lot of people. They saw what was going on. They saw this deaf school. They couldn't believe what was going on. They were amazed. Wow, a school for these children? Like, they didn't think that it could work. There were quite a few parents who were really happy that someone doing something. It wasn't just me. It was this group of people that I met. They started this, and I just came along to learn about it and just fortunate to have some spare money to help them, to give them some money to rent this new place. During that time, I think we, as a group of Ugandans and I, and seeing the children being happy, it affected the community because now they see that a deaf child can do anything, pretty much. They can communicate with their hands. They can write and read, draw pictures, anything. They don't have to do just 
boring work or, you know, farm work and all that. They can do anything that they choose to do. So we changed a community in the area. It was called Kawampi. It's north of Kampala. The community just changed just by seeing what happened. And as soon as someone sees that a deaf child in Uganda can read and write, go to school, have a big smile on their face, they're no different to any other child. So, yeah, that was in 2010. And I couldn't stay for very long, so I came back home to Australia, kept working as a teacher aide. I decided to just go back. I left them there. They were able to do their thing. And I shared my story with other people, and they went over there, did the same thing that I did. And that really helped, helped the children learn about new cultures, and they were able to help in different ways, whether it be sponsorship or setting up a website or anything. We had a lot of people come and go, come and go. I decided just to go back and forth. So I've been to Uganda, I can't count, I can't remember how many times. I have to look in my passport. (laughs) Yeah, during the time of going back and forth and having other people come and go, even people in the community would come along and help. Some people in the community would say, I want to learn that language, maybe be a teacher. So that changed the minds of people in Uganda. I think it was about four or five years of going back and forth, back and forth. We'd gone to a 10 children school under a tree to having land with buildings and a borehole with a well and plants, crop and like a farm. So now they're self-sustainable. So just going back and forth, helping them to start something and having other people involved has created a big school in Uganda. Now there are about 60 children, I think, or more, and probably about 15 or more teachers now. I think the power of helping some small group start something, spreading the word and changing that community has really changed the minds of a lot of people in Uganda to accept deaf children and to respect them. And word goes around, and now I know there are other people in Uganda that I know, like friends or friends or whatever, in the community. They decided to set up something to help a deaf child or, you know, a sewing business decided to open their business to teach young girls, deaf girls, to sew and so there's a lot of people I know now that have decided to help as well start their thing as well start a school over there in their home village from where they're from they met a deaf child and they know yeah I know this deaf school in Kawempe maybe I can do something or send them over there or you know just the power of showing people that a deaf person can do anything change the big community and it just goes on and on that is the voice of Kaylee O'Sullivan, a phenomenal young woman who is based here on the Sunshine Coast of Australia. She helped to build a school for the deaf in Uganda. Kaylee, I'd love it if you could share a few things that the listener might not know about being deaf and communicating with someone who's deaf. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of deaf people in this world. I'm a deaf person with a cochlear implant. I can speak really well. I can hear pretty well too, but I always have struggles. I struggle to hear when there's background noise. So if it's windy outside, the wind goes over my 
process of, of my cochlear implant. So all I can hear is wind. And if someone's talking to me, I won't be able to hear them. There's a wide variety of deaf people. Some were not born deaf. They may have got sick at maybe five years old and their hearing got lost, was gone. There are a lot of deaf people who cannot hear. They have no hearing aid or cochlear implant. They use sign language only. Or they can use written communication with a hearing person that doesn't know sign language. So there's so many forms of communication that we can use. And there are so many different varieties of deaf people everywhere. So there are some that can speak but cannot hear. Some that need to lip read. There are some that can't. Or it just depends on how they grow up, what their education was, what they chose to use, whether to learn to speak or to we use sign language because they could not hear. So if you're walking down the street and you wanted to talk to someone about something and this person not even responding or turning to you, maybe they're deaf. Or just a lot of deaf people need, like a tap on the shoulder is a very, very common way of getting someone's attention that cannot hear you. So for anyone who's never approached a deaf person, there's no need to worry, no need to be afraid of messing anything up. Just be open-minded and see how they can communicate. Like, do they need sign language? Or can we use pen and paper to communicate with each other? If the deaf person says, I can't hear, don't be afraid. You don't have to walk away. They're not telling you to go away. They're there to talk to you. Just find a way to talk to them if you want to. Like, if you want to tell them something or body language is a very, very, very common language that we use in any culture, any hearing levels. So using your body language and express yourself. You don't have to know sign language. You can learn how to communicate with anyone with a level of communication. It's not hard at all to communicate with anyone, even though they can't speak or hear you. Because we can read, we can write, we can see with our eyes, body language. Sometimes we can read. Most of the time we can't, but we try. Just find out how you can communicate with this person and just give it a go. Nothing to be scared of. Kaylee, thank you so much for your time and energy joining me here on The Trail Less Travelled. You're welcome. I was very happy to be able to use my voice as a deaf person. Maybe a couple of years ago I would not even do this because maybe my voice would not be here. I'm just very happy to be able to use my voice as a deaf person to show that deaf people can do anything and I'm very honoured to be able to communicate with you today using my voice. Namaste Missoula and my friends around the world. You've been listening to The Trail Less Travelled, the Trail 1033's locally harvested adventure radio series, which premieres every Sunday evening at 6 Mountain Time. You can stream the show live online at trail1033.com. And if you missed the premiere, be sure to check out the podcast, available on all platforms, and on the official website, traillesstraveled.net. The Trail Less Traveled is dedicated to collecting stories and sounds from around the world, taking you back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. My adventure tip this week is to use a little bit of peppermint oil 
on your neck and on the inside of your wrists while traveling in hot environments. The peppermint oil cools you down. That's it for this week, my friends in Missoula and around the world. But until next week's adventure, get outside and do something for Mother Earth. And shred the gnar. Because as you know, the thing about the gnar is, it doesn't shred itself. Support for The Trail Less Traveled comes from listeners such as yourself. For the cost of a cup of coffee once a month, you can support the Trail Less Traveled podcast as well as our international outreach program. To become a Patreon supporter, visit patreon.com slash Traveled. On this episode, I'd like to give a Patreon shout out for the podcast hosted by my good friend, Steve Saroff. Steve's podcast is called Montana Voice. Montana Voice is a podcast of short stories and life lessons told through the truth of fiction. You can find the Montana Voice podcast on all platforms. The Trail Less Traveled is fact, but if you want to listen to some fiction, I would highly recommend Montana Voice. Montana Voice is a podcast and web magazine of stories and truth, with lessons on making, losing, and rediscovering fortunes of several kinds. Visit montanavoice.com.